You're listening to In On The Act with Sarah Jackman. Today, I'm joined by Camilla Chorfi, Barrister at Falcon Chambers, to discuss the Electricity Act 1989. The Act has been in force for over 30 years and in that time has been relatively untouched. However, the UK's commitment to net zero by 2050 has brought electricity rights and cabling into sharp focus. Last autumn, a consultation on land rights and consents for electricity network infrastructure was launched. And although that consultation is now closed, today we'll explore what it might mean for legislation in this area. Camilla, thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to talk a little bit about the Electricity Act 1989, which I must confess isn't a piece of legislation that I'm too familiar with. And I suspect some of our listeners won't be either. So I think what would be really helpful if you could just start by telling us a little bit about the background to the legislation and why it was originally brought into force. Happily, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. The Act was brought into force essentially to provide for the reorganisation of the electricity industry, um, in turn paving the way for privatisation. The old boards were superseded by the electricity companies and the Central Electricity Generating Board which back then owned the UK's generating assets, was split and subsequently privatised. The transmission assets were eventually transferred to National Grid. The Act makes provision for the licensing of various key actors in particular and their duties of connection. But I think most significantly for our audience are the powers conferred on licence holders relating to private property. Now, Clearly, electricity network operators, usually distributors, need to access private land to install, maintain and upgrade their infrastructure. This will usually involve a a consensual agreement with a landowner, together with a payment of an agreed level of compensation. Ordinarily, overhead and underground lines will be secured by voluntary way leaves or perpetual easements, preferably. Substations, however, are usually on land acquired either by way of a freehold transfer or under a lease. So a way leave is typically understood to mean a permission granted by an owner or occupier for the laying or installation and maintenance of infrastructure on or over land. And they're usually granted in the form of a contractual license, either for a fixed term, subject to uh, the right on the part of a grantor to terminate it on notice. It will usually permit entry for the purposes of inspection, maintenance, etc., whatever terms the parties may agree. But unlike easements, they ordinarily, of course not always, do not confer proprietary interests on the license holder and they will usually not be binding on successors and title of the affected land. Now, reaching those contractual agreements is not always straightforward, especially where there are multiple interests affecting any particular piece of land, or there's a disagreement as to the level of compensation or, for example, the route design. The exercise may take an indefinite amount of time and be very costly or fail altogether. And if no agreement for whatever reason can be concluded, that is where the Electricity Act comes in and specifically Section 10, which confers on licence holders the powers set out in uh, Schedules 3 and 4 of that Act. So just an outline, Schedule 3 contains powers of compulsory purchase and those powers are most likely to be invoked in relation to uh, the acquisition of land for the purposes of substations. Uh, Schedule 4 provides for the imposition of what we call statutory or necessary way leaves. And that's usually invoked for the purposes of accommodating cabling, poles and the like. And I think 
a beetle to return to that shortly in a bit more detail. Elsewhere, license holders have various other powers of entry, including to lock trees, explore and survey land to ascertain suitability for the purposes of license holders' activities. Schedule 6 contains powers of entry for the purposes of inspecting and repairing existing supplies. But it's really important to be aware that there are serious restrictions on those rights, especially where land is covered by buildings or a garden. And secondly, there are limitations imposed by the often overlooked rights of entry Gas and Electricity Boards Act 1954, which requires that, except in cases of emergency, those rights of access can only be exercised either with the consent of the landowner or under the authority of a warrant granted by the uh, Justice of the Peace. The Act also contains a statutory consenting process for the installation of overhead electric lines up to 132 kilovolts or less than two kilometres long. Overhead lines over that threshold will require what is known as a development consent order, and, and that is obtained under the Planning Act because it's considered to be nationally significant infrastructure. But most of the rights that property litigators will be interested in are within the 1989 Act and will be to do with electricity network infrastructure, which is um, not classed as nationally significant, will be uh, usually part of the lower voltage distribution network. Returning then to Schedule 4, as I say, uh, this is by far and away, for our listeners at least, the most important part of the Act because it's to those provisions and to which licence holders will look when they want to retain or introduce new ones. The most important power from a licence holder's perspective is conferred by Schedule 4 and can be found in Paragraph 6, which provides for the application to the Secretary of State for the grant of a, uh, a so-called necessary way leave. A necessary way leave is essentially the grant of consent by the Secretary of State to a licence holder to keep an electric line installed on, under or over land and to have access to it for the purposes of inspection and maintenance. Ordinarily, it will be granted for a period of 15 years, but it may be more, it may be less. Interestingly, the statute specifically provides that necessary way leaves are exempt from any land registration requirements, but will nevertheless bind any person who is at any time after the imposition of a necessary way leave, the owner or occupier of that land. And in terms of the benefit of the way leaves, the Energy Bill 2022 inserts a new subparagraph uh, 7a, which provides that a necessary way leave granted to a licence holder can be transferred to another licence holder and that should be coming into force in the near future. A necessary way leave will be imposed where either it is necessary or expedient, those are the words of the statute, for an electricity line to be installed, kept installed on or over any land and the landowner has refused to grant a way leave or on the terms agreeable to a licence holder or that landowner has given notice to remove an existing electricity line. So the test in the 1989 Act has been very simply formulated. The right sort either has to be necessary or expedient, and there's not really any case law of any utility on these terms in this specific context, but it's tolerably certain that the meaning of the word necessary is an ordinary one, and will invoke questions such as whether the line in question is critical to the security of supply in the area. But obviously, the concept of expedience imports a much broader inquiry, encompassing the impact on the landowner or occupier's amenity, cost, disruption, practicality, etc. 
I think fair to say represents a slightly lower threshold than necessity and involves a careful balancing exercise of the various competing interests in relation to the rights sought. That's a fantastic overview of necessary waylees. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the process that surrounds all of this? I think that would be quite useful just, just to have the context there. In my experience, the, the process for an application for a necessary way leave is usually commenced in one of two ways. Either the landowner will serve a notice to remove electricity equipment from land. Often, this is when an underlying contractual arrangement has been brought to an end or shortly before or upon its expiry. Or as discussed before, if there's been a change of ownership and a previous contractual arrangement has been uh, destroyed by the transfer. Just pausing there, Sarah, it's important to flag to our listeners that rather like in the context of the electronic communications code, the determination of any underlying contractual relationship, if any, doesn't give rise to an immediate right to remove the apparatus. It's continued by virtue of paragraph eight of schedule four of the act, unless and until the license holder is required to comply with that notice, it will remain entitled to keep its line on the land. So usually until such time as the application has been determined. Alternatively, an operator may wish to install uh, new apparatus on land and where it's been unable uh, to reach agreement with a landowner, it will be compelled to make an application to the Secretary of State. But it's worth flagging again that the Secretary of State does not have jurisdiction to grant an application where the land is covered by a dwelling unless the new electric line is to be underground or there's an existing overground line in situ. Returning then to the point that uh, the main constraint um, in relation to license holder applications is that the Secretary of State uh, won't entertain one where the land is covered by a dwelling unless it's a new electric line that's going to be channeled underground or there is an existing overland line. Once the application is made, unless there's a question of urgency, the application will be held in abeyance and thereafter, if no agreement is reached, directions made for the inquiry, which would consist of the exchange of evidence and a site visit. All I'd add about the inquiry itself is that there are procedural rules and detailed guidance issued in 2013 and 2014. And for those unfamiliar with the format. It's it, it's essentially uh, an informal trial and each party will be given an opportunity to call evidence, cross-examine and make submissions. And the inspector's focus will inevitably be on the potential impact on the landowner's enjoyment of the land in the event the right sort are granted. It's a no-cost jurisdiction and the inspector will not be concerned with any question of compensation if after the decision of the Secretary of State rights are to be imposed. The question of compensation will either be a question of negotiation between the parties and if that fails to be determined by the upper uh, tribunal. That was a brilliant overview of the key provisions and, and the process side of things. Um, let's move on to talk about the government consultation and how the position may evolve over the coming years. So we had a government consultation last autumn and it really looked at whether the regime currently remains fit for purpose, especially in light of net zero goals and anticipated expansion of the network over the coming years. Tell us a little bit about the detail of that consultation and the key themes that it was seeking responses on. Well, 
As you say, Sarah, last autumn, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy launched a consultation seeking views on the role of land rights and consents in the build of the electricity network infrastructure necessary uh, to establish in the context of the delivery of its stated uh, net zero goals and future energy security concerns. The government recognises that in order to reach those goals by 2050 um, and maintain a reliable supply network, um, build is going to have to increase exponentially. Peak electricity demand may double, if not triple, by 2050. And depending on the various um, scenarios, the existing distribution network is likely to need another 200 to 600,000 kilometres of additional distribution network cabling. Against that background, important questions over the adequacy of the Act, the current means by which network operators can obtain the rights they need, have unsurprisingly arisen. And my understanding is the consensus in the industry is that the scheme in the Electricity Act is a long overdue a reassessment in terms of its fitness for purpose. So that was almost a year ago. In fact, was a year ago, it closed last September. So we're a year on now from having that consultation. And unless I've missed something, I haven't yet seen a response to it. So what are your thoughts in terms of where we're we're now at in terms of the thinking around some of the themes outlined in that consultation? And I suppose with a general election looming, how does the political picture play into that as well? I think that the necessity for reform is clear in terms of where it might actually go. The consultation itself considers in some detail um, the position in relation to water companies and electronic communications operators. And I think in particular in relation to the latter, we can expect to see a lot of appropriation from um, the code. And one would also hope to see uh, some uh, learning from its deficiencies, um, in particularly the not always happy synergy between the statutory framework and general property law. All of that probably seems very familiar to listeners who deal with the Electronic Communications Code that was overhauled in 2017 to support faster and cheaper uh, deployment of telecommunications networks and has obviously been uh, recently uh, revised yet further. So, it's quite clear that there are a number of critical parallels. We know that the code was um, reformed and developed to meet the rapid expansion of telecommunications networks to meet connectivity and coverage demands. But unlike in the electricity context, tribunals dealing with code applications can grant um, extensive and intrusive interim rights, which might otherwise prevent delay or compromise to that infrastructure rollout whilst agreements are being um, negotiated. An operator can be in front of the tribunal within three to four weeks of having made a reference and the tribunal in a number of circumstances must make a decision within six months in relation to new sites. But there's no comparable provision in relation to electric lines and that's something I think that will obviously need to be addressed. That's just one example. Another example is the elaborate scheme for termination in the code context which we simply don't have in the Electricity Act. And that's no doubt something that those lobbying for landowner rights will want to see secured. But ultimately, given the unprecedented need to increase um, network capacity, this is, I think, going to lead to significant relaxation of the protections afforded to landowners as network operators are given additional statutory rights to install and maintain apparatus 
on private land. Plenty there for listeners to be thinking about. Perhaps just a final word then for our landowner listeners. I mean, just tying in really to that last point that you've just made, with change potentially afoot and and some of the sort of emphasis and rights potentially shifting, what should landowners currently be thinking about? Well, from a landowner perspective, there are some basic sensible steps that should be taken, even ignoring the potential reform coming down the tracks. Obviously, checking the location of equipment, in particular underground cabling. Consideration will need to be given to what rights, if any, are in place in relation to that apparatus and to ascertain who has the benefit of that. Furthermore, is there a code right in relation to it? Frequently, Sarah, the the answers to these questions are that there's no extent contractual arrangement covering um, electric lines. It's always sensible, of course, to procure legal and potentially expert input where dialogue has commenced with a distributor in order that uh, negotiations can proceed fruitfully in relation to, for example, a particular route where there might be an argument on technical grounds or to accommodate any future plans for the land and, of course, compensation. From the perspective of licence holders, I should add, if a landowner seeks to remove apparatus, there's going to be a reasonably tight window in which to make an application. Once, for example, notice to remove has been given, the licence holder will only have three months from that point. Licence holders really need to think carefully about what rights they have, if not under an express contractual arrangement, whether there's some form of um, implied arrangement, for example, ongoing way leave payments are being made. And if no payments are being made, then it's usually worthwhile considering whether or not a prescriptive easement may be arguable. But in practice, even where there are grounds for arguing something more Um, It's usually faster and cheaper to apply straight to the Secretary of State for a way leave rather than engage in civil litigation. All the more so, I think, given the process will hopefully improve yet further in years to come. Camilla, let's leave it there for now. I'm sure there's plenty more coming down the tracks that we'll be able to discuss at a future point. But for today, thank you so much for joining me and really appreciated you walking us through the Electricity Act. That was it on the Act from EG with Sarah Jackman. For previous episodes of In on the Act, see the Podbean archive at podbean.com and the EG Radius archive at egi.co.uk.